One. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath Man, away, Aaron. Nobody episode. Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon. It is Earnhardt Jr. February 14th is on the phone. 2024 people. Hope everybody's doing Hope everybody remember that it's Valentine's Day. That is right. Make sure you got your significant other some chocolates or some flowers or some whatever. Or maybe you're just going to give them Torres. Maybe you're going to cuddle up by the fire and listen to this podcast. Well, here's the good news. We got a jam-packed show for you today. Got two interesting pieces of news to lead the show. We talk college football on the show. We talk college basketball on the show. Why it's interesting. We got news on the future of both postseasons. Is the NCAA tournament about to expand? It looks like it. What will it look like? Is the college football playoff about to look different than we expected at 12 teams? I think it will. We're going to discuss both of those as news broke on each on Tuesday. From there, we will talk Tuesday night college hoops, Kentucky Ole Miss, Syracuse, uh, Carolina, etc. Interesting conversation I want to have on UConn really quick as they're 22-2 and defending national champions. Are we not talking about them enough? And if so, why? Finally, we wrap with uh, the late, the last call, excuse me, just those quick hitters at the end of the show. We'll talk UCLA football's new head coach, uh, uh, an interesting NIL story that kind of came across my desk on uh, on on Tuesday afternoon. So we got a lot of ground to cover, not a lot of time to waste. It is Valentine's Day. Just know I love all you people. Everybody that listens to this show, no more time to waste. Let's get to the topic of the day. Topic of the day, I'll say this. So this show is interesting. I think we're one of the few college sports shows that really covers both college football, college basketball, and bluntly, we do it at a really high level, okay? Um, you know, Yahoo has their college sports show, which I think is really good. Dan Wetzel, Pat Forty, et cetera. Ross Dellinger, who we'll talk about momentarily. Uh, Sirius XM does both. There aren't very many people that cover both. And I bring it up because on Tuesday, we got very interesting updates from very different pl- places on the futures of both the NCAA basketball tournament and the college football playoff. Are we headed towards NCAA tournament expansion? And is the college football playoff about to look different than we expected? It actually sounds like both are accurate. And I want to dive into each. So let's start with college basketball, right? Field the six, you know, we have a field of 68 right now. Everybody loves it. You get a couple games on Tuesday, Wednesday, and then everything gets going on Thursday. The problem is that as college sports changes and as those power conferences, the one with all the money, all the control, and all of the resources and whatever are adding teams, you kind of knew that they weren't just going to be satisfied with having the same number of tourney bids that they're currently getting, right? So field of 68, there's 32 automatic bids, something like that, which means that there's 36 at-large bids. That's not enough for the Big Ten and the SEC and the ACC and the, the whatever that control all of the power. And so on Tuesday, Yahoo Sports, Ross Dellinger, He did an incredible piece looking at the future of college sports as a whole. Revenue, TV contracts, um, the relationship with the Big Ten and the SEC, the relationship with the Big Ten and the SEC versus the Big 12 and the ACC. But one of the things that he talked about was the future of the NCAA tournament. And with all these, well, three of the four remaining power conferences expanding, you knew they weren't going to settle, and it sounds like exactly that. Remember, next year, the SEC goes from 14 to 16 teams. Texas and Oklahoma are added. 
next year, the Big 12 goes from right now 14 teams down to 12 up to 16. Lose Texas and Oklahoma, but they added UCF, BYU, Houston, and Cincinnati this year. They had Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, and Utah next year. Oh, by the way, the Big 10 goes from 14 to 18, adding Oregon, Washington, USC, and UCLA. Well, with those teams coming in, those conferences want more bids, or at least it appears as though that's how it's going to trend and how it's going to go. Here is a quote from the article that Ross Dellinger wrote. He said, however, discussions between the commissioners and the NCAA go beyond the topic of revenue and also include the growing wish for more access in the form of at-large spots. In the meeting with Baker, commissioners were transparent about their desire for more access in a 68-team field that includes 32 automatic qualifying spots, 27 of which go to non-power leagues. I want to see the best teams competing for a national championship. No different than the SEC and the Big Ten want to see in football, Big 12 Commissioner Brett Yormark said. I'm not sure that is currently happening. Here's the bottom line. When Brett Yormark kind of hints at that, I'm not sure we're getting the right teams in. That's him telling you this is coming. It's not him dipping his toe in the water. It is him telling you this is coming. And I think this is an important life lesson, but also a lesson that we talk about on this show all the time. I say on this show all the time, there's a difference between what should happen, what could happen, and what will happen. There's also a difference between what I want and what is inevitable. Quick example. I've never been in favor of multiple-time transfers in college sports. think it's bad for schools, bad for players, bad for teams, bad for academics. But at a certain point, it happened. I stopped fighting. Well, I am here to tell you, I like the current NCAA tournament as it is. I think it's a perfect event. I would add, I think, Brett Yormark's argument that elite teams are being left out is nonsense. But I've also told you now, this has been going on for about two, about 18 months ago, Greg Sankey first leaked the possibility of changing the NCAA tournament format. You can like it. You can hate it. You can be happy. You can be sad. Just understand that this is coming. Now, look, at the end of the day, again, this isn't what I personally want, okay? And I can tell you, as somebody who watches pretty much more college basketball than virtually anybody else, there are other good media members that that, that love this sport. Jeff Borzello at ESPN does a great job. John Rothstein's a buddy of mine. Uh, Rob Douster, who runs... Ironically enough, the field of 68, these guys love college hoops like I do. They, you know, I'm not saying I watch more or less, but I'm saying I watch about as much as pretty much anybody. And I only bring it up because I'm here to tell you, not only is 68 the perfect number, we should probably be reducing teams, not adding. 64 was actually pretty perfect. We're at 68, and I am here to tell you, the bubble is terrible. We most years do not have 68 teams good enough for this freaking tournament, okay? As a matter of fact, I'm going to pull up Joe Lenardi's most recent bracketology because I want to see who is actually on the bubble right now this second, who would be in and who would be out. Let's see Joe Lenardi's most recent bracketology. Last four in. New Mexico, who just lost to a bad UNLV team. Ole Miss, they played obviously on Tuesday night. Nevada, Utah. Utah just got smoked by Arizona and Arizona State, they're still in the tournament. First four out, Wake Forest, who just lost the biggest game of the year. Gonzaga, who does not have a signature win until they played at Kentucky. We are struggling to get to 68 teams. We do not need to add more. And as I said a minute ago, Brett Yormark's argument that we are somehow leaving out elite teams, 
His argument was, uh, I, 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 I want to see the best teams competing for a national championship, no different than the Big Ten and SEC in football. I'm not sure that's current ha currently happening. Let me just say this. That's total hogwash, okay? We have 68 teams. There has never been a year in the history of college basketball that we have left out teams that are good enough to win a national championship. And if anything, we're probably leaving out teams in the mid and low majors that are better than the ones that are getting in. So I don't think the issue is access for the Big 12 or the Big 10 and the SEC and the ACC. But at the end of the day, they control the money, they control the power, and this thing is happening. Now, what does it ultimately look like? That I don't know. Because at the end of the day, um, I don't know if it means adding a couple more play-in games, those early round, those Tuesday, Wednesday games. I mean, if you add, say, I mean, think about it. You add two more games on Tuesday and Wednesday, just two more. That's a total of four extra games, eight extra teams. You go from 68 to, no, no, no that, that's wrong. You had four more games. Yeah, you had four more games, so two a day. That's four games, eight teams. You go from 68 to 74, okay? Maybe it's more, maybe it's less. Maybe you add three games a day, then you add 12 teams. I don't really know. But why I'm bringing it up is to very simply say they're going to figure out a way to add more teams. And we can hate it, we can fight it, but I'm going to tell you why it's happening. It's because the Big Ten, all these power conferences are basically saying we want more revenue because we create the revenue by being the biggest brands in this sport. Now, you can argue in college basketball, the St. Peter's, the little guys, the surprise teams, they're the ones that we watch the tournament for and we get excited for. But the commissioners are not wrong that at the end of the day, you tune in for the big brands, the best teams. And I do think that the reason that we have to expand this tournament is pretty straightforward. It's because if we don't, there's a chance those big conferences could take their ball and go home. Now, I don't think that will happen. I don't think the Big Ten and the Big 12 and the SEC are going to say, we're going to run this tournament without you. But I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility if they get what they want. What, what the bottom line is, they want more money for their schools and their conferences. They're tired of sharing it with St. Peter's and Manhattan College and Central Connecticut and Eastern Washington and Central Kentucky and this and that. Again, we can fight it or we can accept the reality because the reality is, again, that if they don't get what they want, they'll just play their own tournament. You know how I know this? And I talked about this on the show last summer. Remember, when the Big 12 was expanding, there was a moment in time when both Gonzaga and UConn were being seriously considered. Now, the four mountain schools broke off from the big, the Pac-12, so the, the Big 12 had to take them. But why the Big 12 were interested in Gonzaga and UConn was they were basically trying to build the best basketball conference that has ever existed. And their argument is, if there's ever a time when college basketball is taken over by the SEC and the Big Ten and they try to break off, well, you can't run a national tournament without UConn and Gonzaga, and Kansas, and Arizona, and all the schools that we're going to have. So I could go on and on, but this is inevitable. We don't have to like it, but it is coming. Again, I don't think even Greg Sankey and, and Tony Petiti, the commissioner of the Big 12, know, or Big 10, know. Again, I don't know if it'll be 74. I don't know if it'll be 96. I don't know if it becomes a whole week. I hope it's not much more because there are there, we're not losing good teams out of college basketball. We're not leaving good teams out of this NCAA tournament. We're leaving mediocre teams from these power conferences. But I'm just here to tell you, be warned, this is coming, whether you like it or not. Really quickly, also thought it was interesting, on the same day that the NCAA tournament expansion stuff starts, we got a report from The Athletic about what the expanded college football playoff will look like. Playoff, playoff, to quote Jim Mora Sr., not Jim Mora Jr., UConn football head coach. Let's dive in. Um, 
And with this 12-team playoff, I think what's interesting is when they expanded the 12-team playoff, it came right around the time of the Big Ten expanding as well. And if you remember, we can make fun of former Big Ten commissioner Kevin Warren, but he did something brilliant. He sold all of the media rights to different companies. Sold a little piece to NBC, a little piece to Fox, a little piece to CBS. And so now you have all this weird cross-promotion between these, these, these networks. No different, by the way, than how the NFL does. You'll watch an NFL game on Fox at 4 p.m. Eastern, and they're promoting, promoting the Sunday night game on NBC, basically telling you, hey, make sure you turn the channel, leave us, go watch Giants-Cowboys on, on, on NBC Sunday night football. And so I bring it up because it was a brilliant move by the Big Ten. And I think most people thought that once we got the expanded playoff, it was going to be on ESPN, ABC, Fox, CBS, NBC, and then maybe Amazon gets a, a, a cut, Apple gets a cut, whatever. Well, the news that came out via The Athletic on Tuesday afternoon was very interesting. Here is what The Athletic reported. ESPN and the college football playoff are in agreement on a six-year, $7.8 billion extension that will make the network the home of the 12-team playoff through the 2031-2032 season once CFP leaders sort out the specifics of how this postseason and new era will operate, sources told The Athletic. So that's interesting. Essentially, the entire college football playoff is going to be on ESPN. Now listen, I don't work for ESPN. I don't really care. It doesn't really matter to me where the games are played. But I do think it's interesting because, again, part of what the leadership of college sports wanted was a national product, a national event that draws in everybody the way that the NCAA tournament does. And so I'm not saying that by putting it not on ESPN, that's going to happen. But what I will say is I do think this was supposed to be part of the deal. CBS, NBC, Fox all get a cut of the pie. Again, I, I, I work for Fox Sports Radio, but we ha I have no say in what TV does. But I only bring it up because I've talked to high-level people at multiple of these networks. And that was kind of the assumption that Fox would get a couple games, that NBC would get a couple games. Instead, it is going to be essentially an ESPN-only product through 2031-2032. Now, what is interesting, and this is interesting, is that according to The Athletic, over the course of the contract, ESPN will have the ability to sub-license games, meaning another network or digital player could air playoff games, but it would be at Disney-owned ESPN's direction. Discretion, excuse me. And so what I think that means is that we will get some games on other networks. My guess is I don't think that ESPN and, and, and ABC are going to sub-license like, the entire event, but I do think, hey, that opening round, you know, Penn State, whatever, Ole Miss game. Maybe it's not going to be a ratings bonanza, but Amazon's looking for some new subscribers. Amazon's looking to get into the college football space. Maybe they sub-license it to Amazon for whatever the going rate is. Maybe, um, you know, Apple gets involved. I think NBC and CBS could maybe get in the picture, but I think this is really a streaming play because ultimately the streaming partners are the ones that have all the money. We see what Amazon's spending on the NFL Thursday night game. We see what they spent on that uh, uh, Black Friday game. So these are interesting conversations, stuff to think about, but the college football playoff, bluntly, um, is not going to look like what I think we thought. We'll keep you updated if there's anything else new. All right, so what I'm going to do, take a quick break, come back. When we come back, talk a little bit of college hoops. Tuesday was a busy night. Want to discuss that. Also, an interesting thought on UConn. Are they being 
underappreciated with everything that they're doing this year. We'll take a quick break, discuss it next. It is Tuesday night, and this is what we're going to do going forward every single Tuesday. We are going to react in real time to whatever is happening on College Hoops on, on any Tuesday night. Uh, we'll obviously run it on the Wednesday Aaron Torres pod. But this felt like a really good night to kind of get this thing going. We've done a couple live reactions. And the reason, Kentucky was playing an important game. Carolina was playing. It was actually a very busy, entertaining night in college hoops. But let's start in the place where you know we kind of got to start. That's Rupp Arena. And the reason we got to start Rupp Arena is because everybody's been winning in Rupp Arena except the Kentucky Wildcats. They came in on a three-game losing streak. Listen, we talked about it on the Wednesday, on the Monday Aaron Torres pod. We talked about it after the Gonzaga game. But it has been a dark couple days for the Kentucky Wildcats. They were at home Wednesday night facing Ole Miss and Kentucky in a essentially a must-win game. I truly believe it was a must-win game. They get the victory 75-63 to in what I would argue to be the best game that they have played all season long or certainly at least over the last couple weeks. By the way, drop questions or comments on YouTube. We'll get to them uh, after the segment. But from the Kentucky perspective, listen, there is nothing else to say other than that this team desperately needed a win. They get it. But I think if you're a Kentucky fan, the important thing is how it happened. I'm not here to say Ole Miss is the best team that you have played all season long, but it was the balance of really good on offense, but also really good on defense. Obviously, from the offensive perspective, listen, man, I, I know so many people talk about lineups and who to play where and this and that and the other thing. But it was clearly clicking in a way that it hasn't. It is worth noting that John Calipari, as he's referenced several times over the last couple of weeks, Kentucky finally had their full complement of guys, at least until Trey Mitchell got hurt. Uh, but they have their full complement of guys, and the offense looks as good as it has in a long time in a balance with playing good defense. Obviously thought the, the star of the game, Reed Shepard, no doubt in my mind. Listen, man, every time this guy is on the court, good things happen. He finishes the game with 13 points. Five rebounds, five assists. Let, let me make sure I have those stats correct. Uh, Reed Shepard does, in fact, finish with 13 points, five assists, five rebounds. Um, every time he steps on the floor, good things happen. Thought it was a great game from Antonio Reeves. Awesome 15 points, hits a couple threes. Justin Edwards actually carried them early with 12 points as well, and Rob Dillingham was awesome. Equally as of importance, equally as of important, equally important, Kentucky was really good defensively. Now, again, I know Ole Miss isn't the best defensive team that has ever played or the best offensive team that has ever played basketball, but this was such an important effort from this team. By the way, I would say to, listen, the Kentucky defense has been a hot topic and there have been moments where it has been bad, really bad, but there have been moments where I think it's actually been better than, better than people give it credit for. Saturday against Gonzaga, listen, Bottom line was they were down a big guy. They did not have enough help in the front court. I thought that's where it was hurt, but today significantly better. Ghana Nienso obviously finishes with 15, uh, uh, excuse me, with 10 blocks on the day, eight points to go along with three rebounds. And again, just overall, the, the effort was much better. Passing lanes, jumping passing lanes, doing all that good stuff. So when I look at this Kentucky game, like I said, I think this was the most complete effort of their season. And I think it gets them back on track. Now, look, the problem with Kentucky, but also why this game was so important, the schedule does not get any easier going forward for this team. 
You obviously have to go to Auburn on Saturday. You still have at Tennessee. You still have Alabama at home. You still have at Mississippi State, which is always a tough place to play. So this win gets you back on track. I'm not ready to make any declarative uh, statements about this team, but I do think it's kind of important to note. Like when I look at this Kentucky team, what stands out to me is all of the pieces are there. Now it's on the coaching staff to get the right guys with with each other, not play too many guys. And I actually thought Calipari did a good job on Tuesday night of not forcing things, not forcing lineups. Aaron Bradshaw seemed to play the right amount of minutes. Reed Shepard played a lot more than he has in some games, even if it was off the bench. Dillingham got plenty of minutes. DJ Wagner, I thought, got the right amount of minutes. So for Kentucky, listen, I think tonight is a reflection of the good and the bad, the frustrating and the non-frustrating. Because at the end of the day, you look at this team and you sit there and say, when it clicks, it is so beautiful and it is so fun to watch. But then you also obviously have some frustrating moments as well. So I don't really know what else there is to add. You don't want to get too declarative on this team right now because it does not get any easier starting again with the game at Auburn on Saturday, but thought it was a good win. Uh, And we'll answer some of your questions at the end, so go ahead and drop in those questions. Really quickly, some other results from, from Tuesday night that I do think are at least worth addressing. North Carolina Tar Heels are not very good right now. And it's funny because... We've talked a lot about Carolina on the show, and we've talked about them in large part because of the fact that like, I liked them in the preseason. I was the only one, and you know that nobody likes talking about stuff that he gets right more than Torres, right? I love telling you about all the stuff I get right. So when they were awesome this year, I really, um, you know, I I wouldn't shut up about them, but the bottom line is they have not played well. They go to Syracuse. They end up losing 86 to 79 to the Orange. Now, first of all, uh, credit to Syracuse. Listen, I've been saying for years, everybody's been saying, well, what happens after Jim Beheim leaves? What's going to become of this program? How good are they going to be? And I keep sitting there saying, you people are saying that what happens after Jim Beheim? Jim Beheim's the person that's holding this program back. So Syracuse gets the win. They're not great, but they're 16-9 and nine overall on the season. But at the same time, the story here is Carolina. They were so good early. They have now lost four of their last six uh, over the last couple weeks. And really the difference with Carolina is a couple things. I think most importantly, the defense just hasn't been there. This team can always score the basketball. The issue becomes they have not been great on the defensive end of the court. This was a team that early in ACC play was elite. First five wins of ACC play in January, 60 points allowed, 57 points allowed, 55 points allowed, 54 points allowed, 67 points allowed. Well, last five games, Let's go ahead and take a look at what they have given up. They gave up 73 and a loss to Georgia Tech, 84 and a win over Duke, 80 and a loss to Clemson, 72 and 86 on Tuesday night. For Carolina, I think this loss is also big because now you are tied in the loss column with the Duke Blue Devils. Duke, I still think Carolina is the better team than Duke, but you had a two-game lead over them after you beat Duke a few weeks ago. You're fighting for a number one seed. Now you're tied with Duke in the loss column. You have to go to Duke late in the year. And on top of everything else, you, of course, uh, are struggling and you're fighting for a number one seed. It's not just about the ACC regular season championship. It's about also the possibility of uh, getting a number one seed in the NCAA tournament. Right now, Purdue's in better position than you. UConn's obviously in better position than you. Houston's still playing really well. Arizona's making a move. So this is actually like a very significant loss for Carolina. Uh, I would not be happy if I was a Carolina fan. 
Quickly ripping through a couple other scores. By the way, again, this will all be available on Wednesday's Aaron Torres pod. We're going to hit on some other stuff as well. Some big news, by the way, NCAA tournament expansion. People were talking about that. College football playoff news. We'll get to all that on Monday, on Wednesday's Aaron Torres pod. Get into some other stuff in college hoops on Wednesday night. Um, first of all, Indiana State, I don't know how many people have followed this story. It was a really cool story up until Wednesday night. Uh, so Indiana State, of course, Larry Legend, Larry Bird played there, make the 1979 National Championship game. How about this? Coming into the week, Indiana State was 22-3. and This was the most wins that they've had in any season since Larry Bird was there. They get ranked in the top 25 for the first time in like 40 years, and they end up losing at home to a, a, a pretty bad uh, Missouri State team. This is interesting because, listen, as we get closer to March, we'll start talking bubble this, that. I don't love talking bubble. By the way, I think I said Missouri State. I meant to say Illinois State. I don't love talking bubble this early in the season. Um, but Indiana State, as I mentioned, was 22-3 and three coming into today. Their only losses were, to, were at Alabama, at Michigan State, at Drake. Essentially, they didn't have a bad loss on the resume all season long. And so to lose this game tonight in the setting that they did, it's just brutal because, again, as you get closer to the bubble, that was a team that maybe they sneak in. If they don't win the conference tournament, that's a bad loss that's going to hurt the resume. A couple other results. You know, one, Iowa State's really good. Like, we have not talked much about Iowa State at all on this show. Um, and it's because they don't play the sexiest brand of basketball. Like, they're just not, like, a super fun watch. But they are elite defensively. They beat Cincinnati at home. Remember, Cincinnati's in the Big 12 now. They win 68-59. to 59. They force 25 turnovers, okay? And if you're looking for teams in college basketball that could potentially, you know, kind of make a run, maybe they're not being talked about enough, Iowa State is now tied for first in the Big 12 standings with Houston. They have a head-to-head -head win over Houston. And they're trending towards like a two or a three seed in the NCAA tournament with all the good wins that they're picking up in the Big 12. They play elite defense, as I said, cause 25, force 25 turnovers in the win over Cincinnati. And you start talking about a team that probably not enough people are talking about. They get the win. Uh, I thought Florida picked up an important win. They were up like 20 points in the second half against LSU. LSU rallies, ends up tying the game. Florida wins. Florida quietly has won six of their last seven. The only loss was a one-point loss at Texas A&M in a game that, frankly, they should have won. Listen, I was a little critical of the Todd Golden hire, but I thought they actually uh, are playing very, very, very good basketball right now. They're an NCAA tournament team, and I think they're a team that when they get to the tournament, they can win games. Really good personnel, really good players. They survive. I mentioned AM. AM took a really bad loss to that tonight. They played Vanderbilt earlier this evening. They lose to Vandy. Uh, final score in that one, 74 to 73. Listen, I, I go on Texas radio every week. I don't know what the heck's going on with Texas A&M. Feels like a two steps forward, one steps back thing. They were playing well. Now they're not. They lose to Vandy. That is a crushing loss. They're still in good position NCAA tournament-wise to get in. But this was a team that was picked to finish second in the SEC. This was a team that was in the preseason top 15. And now they're trending like a 9-10 seed in the NCAA tournament. It's a weird team. It's a weird year. They had some, some guys on the roster early in the year suspended this, that, the other thing. But Texas A&M takes a brutal loss. A couple other results to note in the Big East. Marquette wins. Why that is significant. They go to UConn on Saturday. That will be a top five matchup in Hartford at the Excel Center. UConn plays on Wednesday against DePaul. We'll talk a little bit about UConn later on. 
Um, and then also on top of that, in the Big East, Providence rallies to beat St. John's. St. John's was down big. Then they rally back. Then they get the then then uh, Providence ends up with the win for St. John's. Man, listen, spent a lot of time talking about uh, Big Rick Energy during the off season and the early part of the season. Well, St. John's has now lost four of five and seven of their last nine. That's some little Rick energy right there. I'm not going to lie. They need to get back on track. I think they're 13 and 11, 14 and 11 overall right now. Good thing is they they hit a little bit of a soft spot in their schedule coming up. Two games against Georgetown, one against DePaul, one against Butler. The good news is there is um, you know, a lot there's there's wins to be had. The bad news is they're not going to be good wins. Also thought it was interesting John Rothstein on the broadcast tonight mentioned St. John's when they play the Big East tournament at Madison Square Garden. Those will be considered home court games, not neutral site games, which will hurt them in terms of if you pick up some big wins, it doesn't mean as much in the computers. So St. John's a team to keep an eye on. Big 10, Illinois rolls Michigan. Listen, the story with Michigan, I don't think Juwan Howard is there for that much longer. Um, It has been a tough, tough, tough go of it for him. I think he sneaks back to the NBA after this season. Um, I think Michigan's looking for a new head coach. He does. He is struggling. Illinois looks really, really, really good. Um, Wisconsin, by the way, was on a four-game losing streak. They win. They beat Ohio State. Ohio State, I believe, will also be looking for a new head coach as well. Uh, and really quickly in the Mountain West, San Diego State does rally uh, to beat Colorado State. Those are two NCAA tournament teams. All right, there is one more college hoops topic I do want to get to uh, before we start to wrap the show. And it involves a team that actually did not play on Tuesday night at all. That team is the UConn Huskies, number one ranked in America on a 12-game winning streak. They're destroying everybody. They, along with Purdue, are like very clearly the two best teams in college basketball. You know I've been critical of Purdue, but I have to acknowledge they have been awesome all year. UConn has been awesome all year. They're one in 1A. Um, And I think an interesting conversation is I, I think both teams at this point, it feels like sort of a Final Four or bust type season. Maybe that's another conversation for another day. But I bring it up because on Tuesday, The Athletic put out an article that caught my attention and certainly frustrated the UConn fan base. The article basically was centered on parody in college basketball. But the way it was framed on social media really frustrated UConn fans, okay? And so the article was about, again, parody in college hoops. It was written by an art, a writer named Brendan Marks. Don't know him, but he, he's done good work. I, I enjoy reading his stuff. And he tweeted, new at the athletic CBB. Is this college basketball season actually wide open or does it just feel that way? Well, I went ahead and read the article and bluntly, it's hard for me to be critical because it basically centers on a lot of the stuff that we've talked about on this show that I was telling you four or five weeks ago that with NIL, with the COVID senior year, so fifth, sixth year guys in college basketball and the transfer portal, basically the the college basketball is completely flatlined. Like the talent, I believe, the baseline talent in most of these power conferences is better than it's ever been. And I think the gap between one and say seven, eight, nine in most leagues is as small as it's ever been. Of course, when you frame the article, of course, the article was not framed that way, I should say. And because of it, with the way it was framed, it pissed off a lot of people, especially UConn fans. Because UConn fans are like, wait a second, you're talking about parody in college basketball. When we are in the midst of a season in which UConn has been number one in the country for five straight weeks, they are on a 12-game winning streak. They are sitting at 22-2 and overall as the defending national champions. 
And so UConn fans were frustrated. UConn fans got mad amongst the tweets here. Let me read some of the tweets that are attached to this article. Jersey Boy NCT says, I am normally a fan of The Athletic, but this is a garbage take. How can you feel it's wide open when you have the defending champs at 22-2 and and looking like a favorite to repeat and Purdue with the National Player of the Year at 21-2 and and clearly being levels above everybody else? Honest, respected CEO said, good bulletin board material for UConn. Um, Let me see what else it says. Uh, One guy, remember how good Jerome Dyson was. Jerome Dyson was a UConn fan, tweeted, did you just start watching college basketball after the Super Bowl? Uh, Greg Ellis says, you are not a serious journalist. Sean McMillan says, how to say you don't watch college basketball with one article. Now, listen, I don't blame Brendan Marks because I have been in a lot of those tweet storms where you tweet something, you think it's going to mean one thing and people take it another. But what I will say, there is a real frustration with UConn fans right now with a simple question. UConn is 22 and two reigning national champs, five straight weeks at number one. And the question UConn fans are asking, and I believe it to be accurate, is UConn's success this season actually being undervalued? In other words, if Duke was 22-2, and if Carolina was 22-2, and and they were the defending national champions on 12-game win streaks and and five straight weeks at number one, would we be talking about them more on the national scale? And I think we know the answer is yes. And so to, yes, to answer the question that UConn fans have, yes, I believe this season is being completely undervalued on the national scale. So the question becomes now, why is that? And I believe, in my opinion, UConn's season is being completely undervalued for two reasons. And by the way, what they are doing is incredible, okay? Let's just let's just baseline, bottom line this. Yes, 22-2. and two. Yes, uh, 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 12 straight wins. Yes, one loss in league play. Yes, five straight weeks at number one. But what's so impressive to me is this. They're the defending national champion. We know that only twice since 1990, twice in the last 35 years have we had a defending national champion. And what's crazy to me is that in both of those instances, both of those teams returned the vast majority of their production the year before. The last time we went back to back, there were it was Florida in 07 and 08. And that was obviously... Two seasons in which, yeah, 07 and 08. No, 06 and 07, excuse me. But the bottom line is it was two seasons in which um, Florida returned their entire starting five. Joe Kim Noah, Al Horford, um, uh, Lee Humphreys, Corey Brewer, and Torian Green. They won a natty. They all came back. When Duke did it in the early 90s, Christian Leitner, Grant Hill, Bobby Hurley all came back. And so I just bring it up because UConn's doing this when they have three players from last year's team currently in the NBA, their three best players from a year ago, Adama Sanogo, Jordan Hawkins, Andre Jackson, all in the NBA. So there's no question it's being undervalued. And again, if Duke was 22-2, reigning national champion, top three players in the NBA, it would be the biggest story maybe in sports coming out of a Super Bowl. So the question becomes why. I'm rambling. I'm going long. Let's get into it. I think there's two simple reasons why this is not being talked about more. The first one, dominance can be boring at times, right? Like I I think about with UConn basketball, I almost think it's like the Alabama football. Remember the Alabama dynasty is bad for college football. UConn women's basketball. Remember that conversation? Are they bad for college basketball? And oh, by the way, you know what the most recent example is? Patrick Mahomes. Like every time that everybody yells and screams, why are you guys in the media talking about Josh Allen? Why are you guys in the media talking about Lamar Jackson? Why are you guys in the media talking about Brock Purdy? 
It's like it's because it's boring to talk about Patrick Mahomes. In the games that matter, all he does is beat those guys' brains in. How many times? We, we don't have to watch Josh Allen versus Patrick Mahomes in a playoff game to know who's better, but we keep trying to talk about it to create interest in games because it's boring to say, listen, Mahomes is awesome, and until somebody beats him, we're picking him. And I do think it's kind of the same with UConn. There is no new interesting topic with UConn until this one I just came up with right now. Because trust me, I've been trying to think about it. Because think about what would be the natural conversations about UConn. Can they go back to back? Well, we figured out basically in like the second week of the season. Uh, yeah, this team can go back to back. Uh, you know, they destroy not only Texas and Indiana early, but a North Carolina team that's trending towards a number one seed. UConn destroyed at Madison Square Garden. They destroyed Gonzaga in Seattle. So at one point, it was an, interest, an interesting conversation. Could UConn go back to back? It ain't really that interesting anymore. Uh, beyond that, then it became, is this team better than last year's team? And I'll be honest, I don't know that that's an interesting conversation because you can't really answer it until they actually do it or they don't, if they go back to back or if they don't. Same with where do they rank all time? I do think if UConn does go back to back, and I'm not saying that they will, then I think that the couple days after the, the season, there's an interesting conversation. Where does this run rank among the greatest things we've ever seen in college basketball? I would argue among the greatest things we've seen in sports because I can't imagine there's too many teams in the history of sports that have lost their three best players one year after winning a championship and still won the following year. Maybe some of those like Alabama football teams or something, but there, there's not many, okay? So I think, one, it's just boring to talk about just insane dominance, which is what UConn is in the midst of right now. Two, the other thing I will say, and you know, some of you will disagree, some of you will get mad, but for years now, there has been a narrative that any sporting events that aren't primarily televised by ESPN basically don't get the coverage they deserve. And specifically in college basketball, this has been a conversation about the Big East for about the last five, six years, is Big East games are exclusively on FS1 and CBS and CBS Sportsnet and obviously Fox. And so I bring it up because the conversation for years has been, does the Big East get the proper coverage it deserves because they're not on ESPN? And so because of it, ESPN is not incentivized to talk about UConn basketball the way they do about Duke or Carolina or Kentucky or Kansas or UCLA or Gonzaga or whoever, all of these teams in leagues that they have contracts with. So I never really believed that narrative, but I will say last year was the first year where I actually felt like, okay, there actually might be something to this because it felt like when UConn started off so well last year, if you remember, they opened the year 11-0 with 11 straight double-figure wins. I was just like, where's the coverage? And then it struck me. ESPN is not incentivized to promote this and talk about it. And so we could sit here and argue about ESPN, and I know a lot of you are going to say, oh, Torres, I don't even watch ESPN. Nobody cares. I hate everything ESPN stands for. And I'm sure there's some political elements to it as well that we don't need to get into. But at the same time, and I do think this is important, um, I do think it's worth noting, like ESPN, to its credit, does dictate the narrative in sports. Think about all the times that something dumb has been said on their airwaves, but it becomes a topic because it was said on ESPN. Off the top of my head, remember when Kedrick Perkins argued that Jokic was only going to win a third MVP because he was white? Like, I'm sorry, that was kind of a stupid narrative, but it was a topic that everybody felt like they had to talk about. You go on and on down the list, there's a million other conversations like it. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. But ESPN sets the tone. 
And so ESPN is not incentivized to talk about UConn. And because of it, I think it's hurting the coverage of UConn. And I do think, by the way, like I think, let me put it this way. I think if Duke was 22 and two right now, if they were the defending national champion, if they were on a 12 game winning streak, I do think it would be on the first takes. I do think it would get more coverage on a Scott Van Pelt. I do think it would matter more in the national consciousness. And we can argue, we can debate. First take is the biggest daytime sports talk show. Scott Van Pelt is the biggest nighttime sports talk show. And I do kind of believe that that is hurting UConn right now. Now, at the end of the day, none of it really matters. I know UConn fans are frustrated. I don't think Dan Hurley cares. As somebody mentioned, this is bulletin board material for him. But if you ask me point blank, do I believe that UConn is being hurt by, uh, do I think UConn is being properly covered and we're properly contextualizing what they are doing right now? I absolutely do not. And I absolutely think they deserve more credit, credit that they're not getting. All right, everybody. I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Final segment of the show. So good to be back. Do want to go ahead and wrap uh, with the last call. New segment we dropped last week. If you missed it, basically, it, it feels like every show, there's those two or three stories that kind of fall through the cracks that maybe I don't have 12 to 15 minutes of material on, but are probably at least worth discussing a little bit. Last week, it was Stephen Belichick, and it was a few other things. And so I think every Monday show, every Wednesday show, we're going to wrap with a, a segment called The Last Call, just getting to some of the odds and ends and little stuff that we did not get to. So let's go ahead and dive in with today's last call. First topic, UCLA has a new football coach. We talked about Chip Kelly on last Wednesday's show. We talked about Chip Kelly on Monday's show. Well, shortly after we did, we dropped Monday's show, UCLA announced that Deshaun Foster, a legendary UCLA player who was the running backs coach last year, left to take an NFL uh, position coach job. He was now going to come back and be the new UCLA head coach. And when everybody saw it, everybody had jokes, UCLA is a poverty program, blah, 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 this and that. Let me just say this. I actually don't really hate the move at all. I did an extended video on this, by the way, on YouTube, if you want to go and check it out. But if you're listening on podcast, I'll just be quick here. At the end of the day, in life, context matters, right? It matters in everything. There's a difference between Dan Campbell going for it on fourth down, down three, in week two against the Jets versus in the NFC Championship game on the road when the 49ers are pounding you. And with the context with UCLA, it's pretty simple. They had to hire a freaking football coach in mid-February. That ain't easy. It ain't easy anywhere. Listen, listen, look at Michigan. Michigan just won a national championship. Their coach leaves in February. Rather than do a national search, they say, you know what? Let's just hire from within. Let's keep this thing together. And I think that's essentially what UCLA said. Listen, this would not have been a hire that I would have endorsed if this was November and December. But if this was November and December, I think they probably could have gotten Jed Fish, who's now at Washington. I think they probably could have gotten uh, Jonathan Smith, who went from Oregon State to Michigan State. But it's not. It's February. Chip Kelly screwed him with the timing. And what this guy allows UCLA to do, keep most of the players, keep most of the coaching staff in place, and try to move forward. The other reason I like to hire, there's really two reasons. One, at the very least, he gets what the job is about. He talked in his introductory press conference about needing to ramp up recruiting. UCLA didn't even try to recruit under Chip Kelly, at least not in the high school ranks. And also the need to, to raise NIL money. And listen, 
I know everybody makes fun of UCLA. There is money in that alumni base, but unlike some other fan bases, they're not just going to give it for the sake of giving it. They got to know where it's going, who it's going to, why it's being used. And they need to believe in the person that's asking for money. And I don't think Chip Kelly would ever even ask for money, let alone um, do the things that are needed, let alone explain why the money is needed and where it's going. I was talking to actually a college basketball coach about this uh, earlier in the week, uh, you know, Sunday, Monday, somewhere in that, that time frame. And he said, he's like, when I go to my boosters, he's like, they want to know where the money's going. They want to, and, and they want to know how it's being used. And that's not a bad thing. That's anybody with their money. And so anyway, I could go on and on, but Deshaun Foster gets it. I like the hire. And here's the other thing. And I, listen, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm not trying to root against the guy, but if it doesn't work out, guess what? Cheap contract, short contract. You can get out of this. This ain't the Jimbo Fisher 10 year, hundred billion dollar, $70 million buyout deal. My guess is you could probably get out of this contract pretty cheap in year two, year three, uh, if it's not working out. But listen, it's not perfect. You'll see if it works. I don't think UCLA is as bad as as bad of a job as the national media makes it out to be. But at the same time, I do think, um, you know, I think it was about what they what what we should have expected them to do. Let's keep it going. Uh, next story that I thought was interesting. Did you see this? Michigan, University of Michigan, we just talked about him. Jim Harbaugh is now in the NFL. Michigan is going to set an NFL combine record with 18 players that they are sending to the NFL combine. That is absolutely insane. I'm here to tell you, though, I don't really find it all that surprising. And why do I not find it surprising? It is because this is part of the reason why I picked Michigan to win the national championship in the preseason. If you go back to Big Ten Media Day, Jim Harbaugh said at Big Ten Media Day, he said, I expect us to maybe break the NFL draft record of 15 players drafted, which was Georgia two years ago. People made fun of him. People laughed at it. People whatever. But then you see Bruce Feldman's freaks list, and he has six, seven guys from Michigan as the freakiest athletes in college football. And so you combine what Harbaugh said, you combine Bruce Feldman's reporting, it feels obvious that that team was stacked in a way that previous Michigan teams weren't and that they could maybe compete with the top SEC teams. That was proven at the Rose Bowl. They beat Alabama. They win the national championship. And here's the crazy part. That that the list, 18 players going to the combine, doesn't even include the guys who are not yet draft eligible. They got two or three guys that most people believe in the freshman and sophomore classes will be first-round picks. Mason Graham, defensive lineman, people believe will be a first-round pick next year. Will Johnson, cornerback, will be a first-round pick next year. So am I surprised? I'm absolutely not. And I think it speaks to like Jim Harbaugh, credit to him, man. Great eye for talent, great talent developer. 18 players going to the NFL Combine. That is insane. Final little topic that I do want to get to. This one's an interesting one. And I feel bad because it feels like every time I talk about Florida football, feels like I'm kind of making fun of them, okay? But I saw this headline on Tuesday morning. And I think it's at least worth discussing. The headline is from the Orlando Sentinel. And it basically implies that Florida football, they're having money raised. They're having trouble raising money for NIL. The headline from the Orlando Sentinel, Florida victorious seeks more wins, more dollars, and donors for the Florida Gators. So let me just say this. When you go into year three of a regime and you have the biggest paper of record that covers you, Talking about how you got no NIL money, that ain't good 
And I thought there were a couple quotes in the article that kind of caught my attention, okay? The first one, this is from Victor Florida Victorious CEO. By the way, Florida Victorious is the uh, collective that, that, that runs things. He said, we cannot guarantee that if we have NIL, we will win a championship. I can pretty much guarantee that if we don't have NIL, we will not. I think that's 100% accurate. But what I also thought was interesting was this quote. Florida's 11 and 14 record in two seasons under Billy Napier has created fundraising headwinds to turn around the Gators fortunes will require more NIL support from the fan base. And so I think, you know, listen, when I saw this headline, it was actually tweeted from a Miami Twitter account, like a university of Miami Twitter account, a rival of the Gators. And it was basically the typical, Oh, Florida's broke. They got no money, poverty program, whatever. But at the end of the day, I actually think that little snippet in that article is the important part. Florida isn't necessarily having trouble raising NIL money. They're having trouble raising NIL money for Billy Napier. And that to me is much more interesting and I want to dive in. And like I said, I feel bad that I'm always criticizing and picking on Billy Napier. But bluntly, the guy makes it kind of easy. 11 and 12 through two seasons. I believe it's the first back-to-back -back losing season since like the 1960s or the 1930s. It's been like 50 plus years, okay? And by the way, this is happening in the NIL transfer portal era. It has never been easier to get talent onto your roster. And yet Florida is coming off its worst two-game stretch in 50 to 60 years. Now, some of it's on Dan Mullen. Didn't leave the cupboard full, but some of it's on Billy Napier as well. But beyond that, and I keep talking about this. It's not just that Florida loses under Billy Napier. It's that they routinely get embarrassed. Like they lose in the most embarrassing ways possible. Okay. Um, this year you lose to LSU when Jaden Daniels basically clinches the Heisman trophy. He has 600 yards of total offense by himself. Uh, you lose to Kentucky when Ray Davis has 280 yards rushing and becomes a brief Heisman trophy contender in his own right. You lose to Florida state at home. When they have a third string quarterback in, you lose to Utah when they have a backup quarterback. You get pounded by Utah. They were, and they were not only missing their backup quarterback or they were playing a backup quarterback. They were missing like all of their key players. And so the, the you know, it makes me laugh when you see the headline, they're having trouble raising money. They're having trouble raising money because it's a mediocre product. And what did I just talk about with UCLA? It doesn't matter what the fan base is. They have to believe what they are giving to, or they're not going to give to it. Just like if you are using your own personal money on whatever you have to believe in what you're giving to. If you're giving to a charity, if you're giving to a, a dog rescue charity, and every time you go in there, uh, the dogs look sicker and the dogs aren't getting adopted. And um, I don't know, there's fleas everywhere. Like God forbid, cause I'm a dog person, but like, if that's you, you would stop giving your money or you would say, where is the money going to? And so I think that's essentially what Florida fans are doing. They're saying we have money. We're just not giving it to this mediocre product. Now, what I think is more interesting in the bigger picture, and this is something I talked about on this show like two years ago. And as usual, Torres was way ahead of schedule on this. And you got to listen closely because I tell you stuff's going to happen. But when NIL came in, I thought to myself, I said, you know the quickest way to get rid of a coach that you don't want? You just dry up those resources, and in the NIL portal world, 
That's all it is. It, the resources are, do we have money to pay our players? And I remember thinking this two years ago, really at the advent of NIL, two things happened that that struck me. One, it was, it was during Coach O's last year at LSU when things were clearly going bad and like he was going back and forth with fans and it was ugly and it was this and it was that. And I was like, he ain't going to be able to recruit because they ain't going to give him any money to help him land the players that he needs. I was also thinking about it from the inverse when the Tennessee Nico Imabalieva story came out about, you know, six months after that. Remember, Nico signed that huge NIL deal. We didn't know it was officially him, but we knew it was officially him. I just bring it up because when Nico signed that contract, I remember thinking, coming off an an eight-win year, much better than the year before, improving. They have a coach that they like. But imagine trying to ask those boosters for that same money if you're coming off back-to-back losing seasons. And it's ironic because if you believe NIL is the only factor in all this, then at the times when you need the most money is the times when you're not going to get it. You're going to get it early in your regime when you say, this is what we need, this is what we have to do, this is what we have to this, this is what we have to that. And when you need it is when you actually are losing and you need to save your butt to get good players. The problem is nobody's going to donate when you're losing. And it's funny because I actually had a a, a, a former uh, head coach reach out to me when I tweeted out that article. And they said, when is the NIL funds going to dry up? One, I do think we're getting closer to a world where college athletes are collectively bargained employees. So it's going to be less of an issue. But what I will also say, I don't think it's going to dry up because I think what's going to happen is I don't think the bubble is going to burst. Maybe that's a better way to put it, because what's going to happen is if your coach stinks, you're going to fire a new you're going to hire a new coach and that coach is going to convince you this is what we got to do. This is the money that we need. And you're going to give because you want to believe in your program. Problem at Florida is. Fans do not believe in Billy Napier. They do not believe in his vision. They certainly do not believe in his product. And so it's hard for me to sit there and say, like, I'm totally surprised that they're having trouble raising money. Know who's not having trouble raising money right now? Florida State. Because they were awesome last year despite how the season ended. You know who's not having trouble raising money right now? Texas. By the way, you know who's not having trouble raising money right now? Texas A&M. New coach. Want to believe. Want to get things right. You go on and on down the list. But this, this headline was incredible, but it shouldn't be surprising. By the way, Billy Napier, I, I think this has been a tactical mistake for, uh, with him from the beginning. This was a guy who came from Louisiana. He's about culture. He's about buildings, about relationships, he's about this. And from day one, all he's been doing is whining about NIL money. It's like, dude, it's a huge part. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying NIL does not matter in recruiting, but I think he's gotten too far away from who he is and what he's about. And I think you just see it on the field. There's just a complete disconnect The program is a mess. Um, That recruiting class went from third nationally to 15th by signing day. You hemorrhage recruits. You hemorrhage hemorrhage transfers. Florida fans don't need to hear this. But boy, oh boy, oh boy, they're having trouble raising NIL money. I'll tell you what. Let's say Billy Napier gets fired. And let's say there's an amazing candidate that they get. I don't even know who that would be. I guarantee you they won't have any trouble raising money. I think this is a reflection of the head coach. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Air Tours Pod. We went long today here on a, on a Wednesday, but fun episode, covered a lot of ground. Who else has given you UConn basketball being too good, Florida football being not good enough? If you're not subscribed to the show, make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure to subscribe. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media. At Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter. At Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. Aaron Torres Pod on TikTok. 
And also make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel if you are not. Questions, Aaron Torres Podcast questions at gmail.com. All for today's show. Appreciate everybody's support. Be back on Friday. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Shout out to JJ Reddick, you F-head. Unblock me, bro. I'll be back Friday. New episode, Aaron Torres Podcast.